waves. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you're catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the torrential and maverick St. Vrain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Becky Peters, and across the table from me is the co-host who once told the Somali pirate, I'm the captain now. I'm the captain now. Ben Kalb. Ben, what's good? It's all good, Becky. I'm just sitting here kind of still recovering from our extremely fascinating conversation last week with math guru Dan Meyer, hearing his opinions on the power of storytelling, on memorization, and on teaching all classes like their electives was so amazing. I really encourage all of our listeners to give it a listen, but don't you dare listen until you finish this episode. Yes, you will absolutely want to finish this episode first, because in just a few minutes, we interview another rock star, Dr. Devorah Heitner, who is one of the nation's most sought-after consultants when it comes to raising and teaching students in this quickly changing world. Yeah, quickly changing world is kind of an understatement. I had one of those experiences yesterday where I just wanted to yell at the world to slow down a bit. I was driving with my family and the Google Maps little voice uh, came on and said, in 0.4 miles, turn left. And as soon as she was done speaking without even missing a beat, my two-year-old son screams, Siri, what's the weather? So my, no way. yeah, yeah, he totally did. And usually you can't even understand what he's saying, but you could totally understand this. My two-year-old is so used to hearing this virtual assistant's voice that he immediately responds with what he's heard us ask her before. That's just fascinating to me that knowing the forecast used to be something you had to stay up for the 10 o'clock news or wait for the paper. And now my son doesn't even think twice about asking her anything anytime. Yeah, and that's a feature I have to even keep reminding myself to remember to use, but you're so right. Kids are growing up with this and they won't be able to imagine a world without it. If you had told us five years ago that saying, okay, Google or hey, Siri on a microphone at a conference would set everyone's phone off, we would have laughed and said that's hilarious. But now it's a joke that almost every MC will use at a summer tech conference. Yeah. And and what Siri can do and what these virtual assistants can do now versus what they'll even be able to do by the end of the year is going to be drastically different. You know, I'm an Apple guy. I don't usually talk a whole lot of Google, but at a recent Google conference, they previewed one of the newest features from their virtual assistant. And it's mind blowing. Uh, basically, Your Google Assistant obviously knows your Google Calendar. It has access to your phone and it has access to being able to respond to speech. And so even starting off this summer, Google Assistant can make phone calls for us and make appointments uh, at brick and mortar places. So give this clip a listen as the Google Assistant makes a hair appointment for someone. It's pretty crazy. Hi, I'm calling to book a women's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. 
That's insane. As Penny Lane said in, oh wait, you won't get that reference. Anyways, it's still unbelievable to me that the phone I just walk around with every day in my pocket is so much more powerful than even the souped up computers in the video production lab of my college. And while we get excited about it, I know a lot of people whose reaction to any new technology is fear and trepidation sometimes. There's an eye-opening book about this called Smarter Than You Think by Clive Thompson. So if your book list isn't long enough by listening to this podcast, you can add that one too. Uh, we're going to feature an interview with him on a later episode of Rainwaves, which has some super pertinent points about the positives of technology. And one of the things that's been hitting me recently is the audience effect. With this ubiquitous technology, we can now create more and more for an authentic audience. And just the fact that we're creating things for other people makes us think through things more as we do it. In one experiment, five-year-old students were shown patterns of colored bugs, okay, and asked to predict which would be the next in the sequence. So one group, they had them solve it quietly by themselves on paper. Another group, they just recorded their thoughts into a tape recorder. And then the third group, children explained it to their mothers who could only listen, not help. But the group working on it by themselves did the worst, then the tape recorded group, and then the group that performed about twice as successfully was the group explaining to an audience. Knowing that we're creating for other people makes us think through our idea more clearly, just like we've known writing to do. So whether we have students write or creating blogs for a global audience or even just creating work that they know will be showcased for their whole class, having students do work for an audience that isn't just the teacher helps them think through an issue more deeply. Yeah, I for sure. And I think we have experienced that doing this podcast that doing work for other people makes us think through things more deeply than if we just did it for ourselves. Um, so I totally resonate with the audience effect. And while we're on the topic of trying to give instructional technologists like myself job security, another thing in Clive's book that I really liked when it came to the positives of technology was just how much more we write today versus 30 years ago. There's a really intriguing part of the book where he interviews his 77-year-old extremely well-read mother on how many times she'd written more than a paragraph. And so I'm going to quote from the book here. So how many times have you written more than a paragraph response recently? Quote, she laughed. Oh, never, she said. I sign my name on checks or make lists. That's about it. Well, how about in the last 10 years? Nothing to speak of, she recalled. I got desperate. How about 20 or 30 years back? Surely you wrote letters to family members. Sure, she said, but maybe only three or four a year. And that, that's crazy to me. When I picture the olden days, I picture dusty old people writing dozens of letters each day. But in Clive's book, he goes back and looks at the research and finds that in peak letter writing days, the average citizen received one letter every two weeks, and that's counting letters from debt collectors and businesses. So just think about how much writing you did last week alone. You probably wrote five paragraphs a day, just an email. And zoom out and think about how much you wrote in text messages and Facebook posts and tweets and maybe instant message or Google Hangout with your colleagues. We write so much more. And in 2014, when he wrote this book, Clive did all the research on everything that we write in other venues. And what he found was that in the typical day in America, we write 154 billion emails, 500 million tweets, 1 million blog posts. We comment on 1.3 million blogs. We write 16 billion words on Facebook and 12 billion words in text messages, which he calculates to 3.6 trillion words a day, which is the equivalent of 36 million books, which is a million more books than are in the Library of Congress. So think about it. Every day, we are writing more than the Library of Congress, and that's not even counting how much we write in Google Docs, fan fiction sites, and so on. So we write more now than ever before. And yeah, I'm sure a lot of that 
writing is garbage, but what if even 1% of that writing is good and thought-provoking? And we know it is because of the audience effect. We're writing more now than ever before, and I think that's only a good thing. And while we're writing more and leveraging the audience effect to think more deeply about what we're communicating, there are certainly challenges that accompany this new frontier. But I can't think of a better guest to help us navigate those challenges than Dr. Devorah Heitner. She is the author of a book called ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World, and also the founder of Raising Digital Natives. Her work has appeared in New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and Education Week. We think you're definitely going to want to share this episode with the parents of your students because we talk about things your parents probably should know. How to parent and teach a digital native, a talk about how empathy is the app, some hacks for better productivity, and so much more. I got to ask this one right off the bat. When people (laughs) hear my job and what I do, my job is helping teachers integrate technology. A lot of times I just get dumped on with some version of technologies decaying the moral fabric of society and as a pure evil. So I'm curious, as someone who has their PhD in this, as someone who teaches tech literacy, how do you respond when people dismiss all technology as being the worst thing ever? Which I get really curious about maybe what experiences they've had or what they're reading or, you know, what's what's causing them to have this kind of panic. And we're definitely in the midst of, I would say, like a renewed, vigorous moral panic about tech and especially about young people, but really even about how tech is affecting all of us. And I also get excited when people are skeptical about tech, because I think we should all be skeptical about about tech and about applications and about devices, but I'm I'm always really curious. So if they say, you know, well, isn't it just making kids stupid? I'm like, well, tell me more. You know, what do you, what do you really think? Or is there a specific device or application or game that you're worried about? Have you actually seen any evidence that kids are, you know, stupid or depressed or distracted? And if so, where's that evidence come coming from? What strategies have you tried to make it better? So I really get curious because I think I think people do get really overwhelmed. And sometimes they, for example, have been part of a tech integration program that hasn't been very well thought out or that hasn't been very well supported with professional development. And it's understandable why things aren't going well. And maybe they need to slow down and practice and experiment and also accept some failure as part of the process. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so how, I know we're going to talk a lot, uh, Devorah, about digital natives. So can you define that term for our listeners and, and kind of say what characteristics stand out to you that we should all be more aware of when we're trying to empathize with the digital natives in our lives? Sure. I, I would define them as touchscreen kids, you know, kids who've grown up with tablets and smartphones. And so that's relatively young. I mean, kids who were in high school or below now. So so younger than millennials, definitely we're really talking about, you know, Gen Z. And some people have some questions about that term. And I would I would actually agree with those questions. I mean, the idea that there are digital natives doesn't mean that kids don't need mentorship. And I think that's really important. So some of my colleagues have said, well, digital natives can still be digitally naive about issues like privacy, for example, or how data is used or information literacy and the quality of information they read. And I think that's true. I think even though kids might intuitively grasp how to make a video on a smartphone when they're three they still need a lot of mentorship uh, to grow up in the digital age and to use digital tools in a a savvy way. So by using the term digital natives, I'm not suggesting that we don't need to help these kids. Right. So you do extensive interviews and conversations with digital natives. And you talk about in your book how there are certain things about life that they enjoy and then certain things about being a digital native that are very hard. And I think 
to empathize. We need to understand both of those. So what do digital natives really like and what makes being a digital native hard? Well, digital natives really love having access to all this great content and the diversity of content that they can access. They don't always appreciate how different that is from what us old people had to deal with. You know, I'm in my 40s. And so, you know, broadcast TV was a very limited playing field when I was a kid. And there were very limited opportunities to see super interesting things. Certainly it wasn't global. I mean, this is even, you know, I grew up without cable. Compared to that, kids have a lot of great content. They do really appreciate being able to access a visual archive, like through YouTube, even before they can read. They get really excited about finding out what other kids are doing. And so the fact that they can both share and create content and see content that peers have shared and created, they really appreciate. On the other hand, there are some things that they they find stressful, but they they certainly appreciate how intuitive a lot of the tech is for them to use and create. So you're, I, I first heard of you, honestly, through your TED Talk. It was TEDx Naperville. I used to live just by there. It's hilarious. But your TED Talk, it's called The Challenges of Raising a Digital Native. And if you haven't listened to it, listeners, I, I would certainly recommend that you watch it. It really challenges us as parents to, and teachers to be more curious about our kids' digital lives. And you keep coming back to that, to be more curious about it instead of you know kind of going beyond our instant urge to want to spy what they're doing online. And in, in that talk and also in your book, you you say, you have a, a phrase that says, empathy is the app, which I love. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Like empathy is the app? Absolutely. We always want to recall that there's another human being on the other end of our digital communication, whether we're group texting with the rest of the sixth grade or whether we're on an online parents group as an adult or any other situation where we're communicating digitally. We just want to always remember there's someone else on the other end or potentially a group of people on the other end. And so we want to respond as if we care about how those people feel, which seems so obvious, but it's quite easy for us to forget and for our kids to forget that they are communicating with people who have feelings and who might feel really bad if we leave them out or talk about them in negative ways or if we show a picture that seems to be excluding them, right? So all of those experiences are really important to think about when we're communicating digitally and that's where empathy is the app. And then I also want parents to remember that there is no app to raise these kids for us and to to teach them how to do this successfully, to teach empathy to them. And so our own empathy is, is the parenting app that we want our own ability to recognize what it feels like to be left out and to recognize what, how difficult it can be to resolve a conflict. And one thing you said, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old right now. And in your TED talk, you give an example, you say like, how, how do you think that feels when you know a fifth grader is sitting there and watching a sleepover unfold before her eyes on social media that she wasn't invited to? Like, I mean, that hit me straight in the gut. I, I don't want my daughter to ever have to go through that. It is terrifying, right? Because we experienced of all kinds of exclusion, but not it wasn't so visceral and it wasn't sort of laid out for us on videos and in photos. So we might have heard about things that we missed after the fact but it wasn't simultaneous. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. And I, it is so much harder at the time. Growing up in middle school, I didn't know how left out I was until every Monday morning. <laughs> you speak a lot that there's not an app for raising kids and it's not about monitoring. It is about mentoring. Why is mentoring a digital citizen harder than mon- just monitoring all of their actions? Anyone can you know, put an app on their kid's device and you know, get a readout of all their text messages and all their logins and every website they visited. And I'm not suggesting that there's never any place to monitor our kids. Certainly if we do monitor like in school, a lot of times their email or Google Classroom might be monitored. And then it's just good to let kids know. We don't want to covertly monitor them because why would we want to surprise kids with that information? We actually want them to know if we are 
are monitoring what we're looking for. Mentoring is a lot more work. Mentoring is like, oh, you're having a conflict in a group text. Let's brainstorm about what your options are, right? You can get out of the text. You can stand up for the person who's being talked about. You can walk over to your friend's house and talk to her about the situation. You can take a break from your phone, right? And those all might be the right choice in one one given moment or in one situation. So it's much less cut and dry. There's not always one right answer when we're mentoring. We're really helping our kids sometimes resolve mistakes that they've already made and repair. It's not, we can't always assume that we can prevent everything. Even if we do a great digital citizenship curriculum, we're giving kids powerful communication devices at a time when they're still learning how to interact with other people. So we should expect that some things are going to go wrong. And so mentoring is partly about helping our kids navigate when things go wrong. And and you can't do that with a monitoring only strategy because that's about catching your kid and you know, external and extrinsic consequences. It's not about helping them get it right the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you had to say about being blatant and obvious and telling your kids that you're looking at it so that they can use you as an excuse. Like, well, hey, don't send me those kind of language or pictures because my parents look at what I'm doing. And I know as a student growing up, who was kind of a people pleaser. I liked using my parents as an excuse in a way of getting out of things. So I think that's, that's a great strategy to share with any parents out there. Absolutely. And for especially for younger kids, that's very appropriate. As we as kids get older, like into high school, they're less likely to say, well, my dad looks at my phone, so you can't use bad language, but you kind of want them to then express their own preferences and boundaries with friends. But I think using parents as an excuse is a great bridge. And it's always good even for high school to be, you know, to be able to say, I have to get out of here or my parents will kill me, right? And, you know, if you just want to leave, <laughs> it's like time to go. Totally. Absolutely. I'd love to transition a little bit here to talking about digital citizenship and, and your digital footprint and really like how a teacher should go about teaching that. George Kuros has a pretty powerful analogy where he says, imagine when you start to teach a kid how to write, that you focus the first five lessons on how not to stab someone with a pencil. Will you see any creative stuff happen? And he says a lot of times what he's seen for how teachers teach digital citizenship and digital footprints is doing that scare tactics about the worst thing. I love how you focus on how we go about teaching digital citizenship and the digital footprint. Yeah, you really want to focus on the positive side of sharing and the upsides of being identified with cool content that you've created. And so sharing, you know, in smaller circles, like within a classroom or a school community is a great chance for kids to get to share. And we also want to draw our kids' attention to people who are really positive, who have a really positive digital footprint. We're so obsessed, as you mentioned, with those negative examples and someone who's lost their job or made a lot of mistakes. And if we can look at someone who is positive and fun and, you know, a lot of, for example, kids' authors are really great online because, again, they know they have a young following and mostly they're pretty savvy about that. So some, some of the Olympic athletes from the Winter Olympics were great. You know, so you really want to look at, find some positive examples. Who are some people your students admire and who, ha- who have a positive digital presence? If you're bringing a guest speaker to class, maybe if they have a, a great LinkedIn page or some other or a website, you could share that with your students before they come because it's a great way for them to see how someone's actual persona maybe intersects with their their digital persona. And I think teachers are always trying to find ways to just embed things into the, you know, digital citizenship ideals into the lessons that they do every day. And that's an awesome way to do it. And so back to that, you you say in there too, that you have to counsel parents. I'm sure you have to do it all the time, but I, I kind of need a counselor for this question. I was talking to a friend of mine about modeling good behavior on our phones. And, you know, both of us read eBooks on our phones a lot. And I have little ones 
ones and you know even students, how obvious do I need to be about what I'm doing on my phone? I think sometimes people see me on my phone and assume I'm playing like Angry Birds or something. I I'm, I'm kind of addicted to it. I may or may not be playing right now, but do you think like how much should I let people into my digital life or see what I'm doing in order to model good behavior? It's great for your kids to see you do some things. And obviously we, you know, I know, I know some educators want to turn like every trip to the grocery store into like a massive, you know, lesson. Sometimes you just want to get in, get your bananas and get home before your kids <laughs> understand that. But if you can talk with them and say, like, I'll talk with my son and say, oh, you know, I texted Papa and I'm not going to keep texting him because clearly he's busy right now and he may not have seen the text. So I'm not going to keep texting because that would be annoying. I know we'd really like to know when he's getting home, but we'll just have to be patient, maybe distract huh. ourselves, you know, or so really talking through like, who am I talking to right now? Or, oh, you know, I'm going to text Grammy right now to see if she's coming over, but then I'm going to put my phone away because we're eating, right? So trying to be really clear about what you're doing so your kid doesn't think you're just, you know, words with friends or watching YouTube all day. And then also really try to be honest if they want to talk with you. A lot of times we have five more minutes, our kids. I try to make an actual clock time with my kid and say, okay, I can, I can meet up at eight as opposed to five more minutes, which becomes very nebulous because then, you know, it really stretches out often. And I also am guilty of, you know, not closing my laptop all the way. I'll kind of look over it at him and close it to halfway. So I've started closing it all the way when he wants to talk to me. And I, I now have something that will save my tabs. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about losing oh, my goodness. tabs. Yes. That's a, what do you use? Uh, it's, it's an extension in Chrome. I don't remember the name of it, but it Toby? works for me, yeah. I was just talking about that. It's my favorite. So, but I could see that having a lot of application in the classroom too, because I think, you know, I, I remember I used to go on my computer and just not be really transparent with students um, as to what I was doing on there. Like, oh, I have to email a, another colleague or I'm just on here researching something for my next period or something. And I think it's really easy for them to think that we're just ignoring them with the technology in front of our own faces. Absolutely. And I think we just need to be really clear. And when our students come to talk to us, if we do look at them in the eye, and if they're not doing it with us, we can try to in a nice way get in their face like literally like move our face to be more in their face so that they can kind of see like sometimes it's nicer to just make a physical action sometimes you just have to say hey dude put down your phone i'm trying to talk to you but if you can just kind of like you know move your face closer to where they are to see if they then notice that you're trying to look at them because eye contact is a norm that we do want to establish as really important. And it's one of the things that makes some of us worried about the future. Like when parents or, uh, you know, teachers, colleagues come to you and say, I'm terribly worried about kids in the digital age. Maybe that's because nobody's looking at them. Well, we can teach kids to do that, but we need to let them know it's an expected social norm. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So that's an example of something in your book that you talk about being for parents, but has a perfect segue to the classroom, being transparent with what you're doing online. Another thing that you talk about in your book for parents, but I think would really segue nicely to teachers as well, is the difference between digital savvy and then the wisdom you bring and how as a parent or a teacher, we don't have to know the ins and outs of every app, but what do we need to know? That's a, a great example. I mean, I was just with a school that was having a lot of issues with kids interacting in negative ways in Minecraft and they weren't the more experienced players didn't want the new players to come in. And instead of saying, well, let's shut this down because we don't really understand Minecraft. You know, there's only one person here who really gets Minecraft, but the whole grade is being impacted. And let's just tell the kids not to talk about it, which is very commonly what happens when these kinds of conflicts come up and seem to be interfering with school. Instead, they said, well, let's have a sharing circle and really talk about what's happening in Minecraft and see if we can solve the challenges. And they came up with an onboarding strategy for the more experienced players to help the less experienced players uh, get better at the game and be included. 
So what a win because what an incredible 21st century skill, right? Onboarding a less experienced player into a community with expertise and had the teachers felt like, well, we're not experts in Minecraft. Therefore, let's just shut this down or this is distracting the kids. Let's not talk about it. I think they would have missed an incredible opportunity for the young people to use the space of school and the resources of having experienced adults around who are, who could help them kind of um, navigate a difficult conversation but the kids really achieved something with the adult support. And I think that it, it would have been a real missed opportunity had the adults just shut that down. Totally. So it's not about the tech savvy of, oh, I know exactly how Snapchat works or how Minecraft works, but it's having the wisdom of the, your experience with, I know what it's like when someone gets left out or when there's conflict and how to resolve it and don't downplay your wisdom that you bring to every situation. Absolutely. And the other thing that that makes me think of is, you know, there's expertise on both sides. And I, I love in your book how you embed the child's perspective. And, and much of that is from like kids giving examples of, you know, what, they're, what they don't like when their parents do with technology, like the five more minutes thing you talked about, um, or that they've always got their phone in front of them. Have you heard any insightful things from your student interviews that you would want all teachers to know about their perceptions of technology in the classroom? Well, one thing is that they don't love apps just for apps' sake. And so if you're doing something in it's working well without tech. You don't necessarily want, I mean, I think a lot of your listeners are familiar with the SAMR model, but not everything needs substitution, right? Uh, Or or augmentation, right? Or all of these other steps. And so I I think it's really important to, to say, hey, is this working as it is? Or to try substitution and not be afraid to go back as well. And so kids are skeptical. If, if you're using an application with them and it's really buggy or takes five times as long than paper and pencil, then the kids are going to be really skeptical. So really get their opinion. If, if they have the opportunity to lobby for certain apps, you know, if you're, if you're open to considering to note-taking apps, let the students try them and lobby for which one should be whitelisted. And I think that's a really great strategy because you want them to be invested in the opportunities and apps that they're using. And, you know, to borrow from Howard Gardner, we always want our students to be app enabled and not app dependent Mm. as well. So we always want them to remember, you know, I live in a city with a grid system. And if I see people navigating on their phones in the grid, like walking, like, okay, I'm at 1000 and, you know, I'm at 1500. If I want to get to 1600, what do I do? Well, you could look at the house numbers and just walk in that direction. Like you don't necessarily want to have the Google lady to tell you what to do in that situation. So I think we want our students to use apps to expand their superpowers, but we don't want to make ourselves less intelligent or able, (laughs) you know, either. That's all about balance. That's beautiful. I love that. And Dearborn and Wabash, I still know exactly where that is on the on the grid system there in Chicago. <laughs> exactly. And you should be able to figure out what to do from there. If you need to go, you know, 300 North, you should be able to make a turn and do it. And that's where I do see people using their phones for that. And I, I get a little concerned. We uh, kind of going back to maybe some fears. When we're looking at screen time, I hear, I see posts all over my Facebook about how screen time is horrible. Is all screen time the same? Absolutely not. And I, th- I think it, it's really frustrating because screen time has become such a popularized term and I try to move beyond it. It's hard to get, get around it, but I try to think about sort of plugged and unplugged time or, because the, the challenge with screen time is if I get a cooking app and I get my recipe for dinner and then I've used the Google lady to drive to the store, but have I used up all my screen time? Can I not watch a Netflix or send an email later? Are, the ways we use technology are, are so ubiquitous and by middle and high school, so many of our students, if not earlier, are using tech in that same ubiquitous way that we do as adults, that it's learning, it's social time, it's 
communicating. It's very basic information that we need to just function. And so we need to separate all of that out and say, yes, maybe I don't want my child at home watching endless YouTube videos on how to play the game. I want them also to play the game and I want them to do things that are not about the game as well, like their homework and sleep. And right. So it's really about balance, but screen time is not very helpful. If your kid is composing a symphony or writing a story, that is very different than if they're passively consuming content. We also want to look at some of the content they're consuming, right? Passively consuming content can be awesome if it's great content, <laughs> um, but there's a huge range out there, right? There's incredible kids TV. There's some YouTube channels that are amazing. There are some YouTubers that I think as parents and educators, we probably wish our students weren't watching, yep. um, you know, unboxing videos or things like that. Yeah, I think there's just a huge difference between consuming and creating. And I love that you agree with that. And uh, that's fantastic. Love that answer. Thank you. You have a whole chapter on school life in the digital age where you talk a little bit about parent-teacher relationships with technology. So we've talked a little bit about teacher-student, student-parent, but what about the parent-teacher communications? Can you give some examples of some really healthy, productive parent-teacher relationships that are aided or augmented by technology? Absolutely. I mean, I think that email, as much as it, it can be really challenging to deal with email, and as a teacher, you have so much front-facing time in the classroom that of course there are times where email can be burdensome. So I definitely counsel parents to think hard about when, when our students or ourselves are emailing teachers, really make sure that that is the best choice in that moment. You know, if your kid forgets to write down the homework, he probably shouldn't email the teacher. He should get it from a classmate. He should use the learning management system. That's not a great teacher email. If your kid's going to be out for a week or needs extra help, that's a good teacher email. So it's really important to think about, does this rise to, to the need? But for working parents like myself and many of us, and a lot of teachers are in this boat too, right? We're super busy. You guys are super busy during the day. So when you need to talk to your own kid's teacher, that out of sync communication that email provides is really helpful. It's important that we all remember that it's out of sync and don't expect that immediate response that sometimes texting has pushed us to, to expect. So I think that's really important. Another thing that faculty can do that I think is so amazing is bring in parents via Zoom or Skype, whether it's as guest speakers or to be a mystery reader. Again, anything that makes it more possible for more parents to get involved during the school day when a lot of our work would prevent us from being in school, I think that's really, really helpful. I mean, there for every parent who's able to come in, you know, every couple of weeks or even weekly to help out with math games or, you know, read to students or do, do really great, a very appreciated volunteer work at school. There are lots of parents who will never be able to do that because of their schedules. And so tech can make that much more possible and make those parents feel really included and part of the learning environment and also let classmates see, you know, if a parent is able to come in and speak about their work or, you know, again, be a mystery reader, that's incredible. So I think there's a, there's a lot uh, of benefit and but we should also make sure and I think this is where leadership has a role to play and making sure that we're not increasing workload you know that you're not expecting teachers to also be available online for example running homework help at all hours that's not a realistic expectation it's not a fair expectation it's also probably goes against contractual <laughs> situations in many districts so I think it's really important to look at what's really because importantly a lot of innovative workplaces are actually cutting down on after hours email and in, in order to allow their teams to stay fresh and work together collegially during the day. So I think we, we need to look at what's working, but also look at what's not working and try to, you know, obviously amplify what's helpful and effective. And, you know, it, and I think another thing that happens too is teachers can feel a lot of pressure if they have a colleague who's amazing on Twitter or has an incredible class website 
you know, teachers can feel like, oh, I must replicate that. Well, to a certain degree, you may want to get some ideas from it if you think it's great, but you also don't need to do everything that everyone else is doing to be effective. I think that sharing what you're doing on social media with parents can be great, but I think teachers shouldn't feel overwhelmingly pressured that that's something they must do all the time in order to be an effective teacher. The most important thing you're doing is showing up every day and being with your students, listening to them, teaching them. If it works for you to incorporate a sharing out process, I think that's amazing. But I think if it's stressing you out, I wouldn't focus on that. That's awesome, Devorah. Because I I think, especially like there's so many people around me that are amazing on so many platforms. um, And I feel pressure to to be amazing on all those platforms. And really, I mean, you're absolutely right. Let's keep in mind and prioritize what's important, but then also, you know, do what's within our capacity to augment that when we can. Yeah. And also just make it, I think schools should make it easy over time, make it easier for people so that every teacher isn't inventing that wheel. Right. And if you're doing something cool that you want to be photographed and shared with parents, but you don't have the bandwidth to make a whole website, maybe there's, you know, a PR person in the district who can come and tweet that out for you. Or so, I mean, I think we also need to collaborate and not have every teacher inventing the wheel on that because it, it, it truly can become then an extra job. And so I don't want to see that happen or, you know, see teachers kind of judged as educators by just what they're sharing. Because again, I mean, for my own kid, I mean, it's, it's the learning experiences that he's having, right? And, you know, this year he has a teacher who sends an email newsletter and that's it. It's very traditional. It's great communication. I know exactly what they're working on. There's not a million pictures. It's not video. It's not a YouTube channel. Um, but I know what he's learning because he's talking about it and I'm seeing the work and, and being informed. So I think we don't need to create these, these incredibly high expectations. You know, not every faculty member wants to, you know, sort of do part-time PR. Um, that said, if you can do it and it's awesome, you know, definitely go for it because parents love that stuff. And I think it can increase engagement. It makes kids feel great. Uh, I think we have to find a way to embrace the differences in the ways different faculty will integrate tech and that a at, at schools where educators are really empowered, there should a wide range should be acceptable and supported. We don't all need to be doing everything the same way. Wow. That's, yeah, that's like awesome. a mic drop. Yeah, because I think yeah. <laughs> you talk a lot about in your book about connectivity stress. I see that with teachers, you know, that they feel like they have to be tweeting and checking email 24-7. And you're right that it should be about if it's natural and in your area of strength and you're good at it, go for it. I had a principal who I once complained about the work hours. And he told me, Ben, you can work half days. And I was like, what? You just pick whichever 12 hours you want. And he was joking. (laughs) He was joking, but it felt kind of serious at the same time. And I think that's great drawing boundaries of what you can and can't do. On that same note, there are big wigs at app development companies for Android and every single platform out there. And they are trying every day to invent new ways to get us looking and drawn into our phone. So what are some practical tips or strategies or ways that you create boundaries to make sure that your actual physical children know that you are there and present? I think that's a great question. And I'm, I'm so excited that this group in Silicon Valley called Humane Tech is looking at some of these design issues, right? So if you've read, you know, Tristan Harris or Adam Alter, some of these folks who... Uh, you know, have work, worked as insiders and really know some of the ways that tech can suck us in. Our apps are designed with no ending cues. There's nothing to tell us to be done. Unlike the shows I watched as a little kid where it ended and the credits rolled and that was it, right? I couldn't even get another episode for another week. 
you know, Netflix starts playing the next episode right away. So the things that I use when I am on deadline, so when I was writing ScreenWise and now I'm working on some new writing projects, I'll turn off my Wi-Fi and work on my laptop without being connected. And I try to do that a couple of hours every morning when I'm writing. So I don't, I'm not able to do that every day, but if I'm, if I've declared it a writing day, then I'll try to get to a certain word count with, with my Wi-Fi off. So that means no Facebook, no email. For me, those are the distractions. And I also try not to double screen, which is, you know, having my phone and my laptop going. So I'll turn my phone onto airplane mode if I'm on my laptop, unless I'm, you know, planned or expecting a call. And, and that really helps. A lot of young people are double and triple screening. So they have multiple devices out and they have multiple windows, which is basically like another device. And I'm certainly guilty of window pro- proliferation. Uh, so then every once in a while, I try to just look in, at my windows and say, oh, it's, gosh, why do I have 17 windows open? Maybe could I close a few of those? Yep. And, and you joke this? about your college application that you filled out on an Apple 2E or something, you know, one of those really early ones. That's all you could do on that device was fill out your college application. So you got it cranked out. But now there are literally millions of things you can do on your computer. So I love the tangible idea of turning off your Wi-Fi. Yeah, it's amazing any of us get anything done. I mean, truly, there's always something, right? I have two adorable new nephews. I could just look at new pictures on Facebook of just those two kids every day instead of doing my work. Yep. Yeah. Or cat videos on YouTube. Guys, just check it out. No, you don't. For me, it used to be real estate sites for a long time. That was my problem. Yep. So, I mean, it's, it's not always the obvious rabbit holes. And I think making intentional time where I might say, okay, like I will take a break at 3.20 and look at this real estate site or, you know, spend a minute, you know, browsing about places we could go on vacation, but I'm going to have an ending time too. And I'm going to put that on the calendar. I'm going to schedule it before something that really is a hard ending, like picking my kid up at school, which, you know, I'm not going to blow that off. right? (laughs) He can wait. I have more houses to look at. (laughs) Tell your time what to do, or it will do it for you or something like that. Interesting. Um, So a question for you, Devorah, you are a very successful educator. You've got your PhD. Um, I mean, you're obviously very passionate about this stuff, but but what what do you do well that makes you more successful than other people? I don't know that I would say I'm more successful than other people, but I will say that I've been really flexible in my career. So I was a professor and was unable to continue being a professor for a variety of reasons, mostly geography. My husband didn't want to move and I would have needed to do a national search to stay in that field. And I was already really interested in kids and tech but my first book was actually about something totally different. So I researched a couple of ideas for ways I could be helpful to parents and educators and really kind of figured out that raising digital natives would work. I talked to a bunch of people about another idea and then I talked to people about this idea and I did some focus groups among parents of middle schoolers. And this is back in 2012. And every, every parent of a middle schooler in 2012, that I said, well, would you want research-based, you know, help that would decrease your panic and help you understand what your kid is doing on their phone? And, you know, there's this thing, Instagram that kids are starting to use. Would you want some help, like knowing what that is? And they were all like, yes, yes. Can you start tomorrow? Can you, you know, can you start yep. yesterday? I need it right now. So I recognized I was really onto something. And I think as a lot of us as teachers don't, don't recognize that we are good public speakers because we just do it all day and that's what we do. But as a professor, I had a lot of practice giving talks. So the fact that I'm now making my living, you know, largely as a speaker, I definitely um, am also doing consulting and writing, but speaking is, you know, the sort of revenue part of raising digital natives. 
that's, that's the biggest piece of that. And, you know, as a college professor, I was speaking all the time. I didn't really think of myself as a speaker. So it was an interesting transition, right? Going in and then now doing keynotes and that kind of thing. So I think it, sometimes when you look at your own strengths, they're, they're hard to see because you're probably using them every day. So getting someone else to maybe tell you what you're good at is a good idea. That's, I, I'll tell you, I did that a couple of years ago. I just asked like the five people that are closest to me what they see me as being good at. And it was so different than what I thought, you know, I would have labeled myself as. I think that's a really great lesson. And you're right. I think a lot of teachers are sometimes that I know are afraid to get up even in front of their own peers or in front of the staff at their school to share their ideas because they're afraid of public speaking, but they do it all day. They're probably a lot better than they think they are. Oh yeah. Your average teacher, you know, and and most, most teachers are probably sort of above average, but an average teacher is so much better at framing an idea right? Making sure it's coherent and makes sense. And, and a, lot of, a lot of other folks don't have that practice. So we're going to transition to our last couple questions. These are rapid fire questions. And we're asking them to every guest who we have on, and hopefully we draw some patterns from them. So the first one, are you ready? Drum roll, please. Sure. <laughs> first one, if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, you would get your message out to millions of people what would be on your billboard? Maybe it would be a quote, a picture, what would be on your billboard and why? I think empathy is the app actually. And something that, I don't know, an image of people communicating in in a direct way, even though they have devices in their hands, something like that. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm being reductive, but I just feel like, you know, empathy is the app is really, really important because people are looking for this killer idea and they just need to remember to take care of one another. I love it. That'd be amazing. Let's get it on yeah. Dearboard and Wabash. I lo- <laughs> nice. Governor Ryan, um, get it on. <laughs> so next one, Devorah. Uh, in the past five years or so, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? You've mentioned a couple of personal hacks that you use, you know, like turning off the Wi-Fi and things like that. But what do you think has most improved your life in the past few years? Exercise. <laughs> oh, nice. Good one. Yeah, I really stepped up my exercise. I mean, I had a sort of a, a meaningful birthday and couldn't take sort of certain physical fitness traits for granted. And uh, so exercise is key to my mental and physical health. I would say. You hit and the I big probably- two five, huh? Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's a big yeah. one. Yeah. No, well, we, it's all downhill we, from there. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons we made this podcast, we would love if teachers are learning while they're running and or walking or being active. So that's fantastic. You are at the top of your game, Devorah. My next question is you probably go to conferences or places where you hear lots of other experts. And my question is, what is some bad advice that you hear from other educational leaders? And you do not have to name names, but what is some bad advice you hear? Test the kids more to, because we're not testing them enough and we don't know the outcome of everything. So let's, let's do more standardized tests. That's really bad. Let's, let's decrease lunch and recess because, you know, eight, the 18 minutes is too much time to waste on lunch and recess. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of bad ideas in education right now, I would say. I mean, I guess in, in specifically in ed tech, it's let's give everyone a device regardless of whether we have a plan. Mm. Oof, good one. That's, yeah, that's a mic drop. All right, last one. Um, and we're, we're trying to kind of cultivate answers for this from people in all different professions. But what do you think are the most, I guess, important skills for students to graduate high school with? Like, what do you, what do you think are the most important things that we can teach students in education? That's a great question. I think we should be helping them become problem identifiers and problem solvers. So looking around in their school and their community and their country and their world and saying, what are some problems I care about? 
and being that I'm motivated that I could get up every morning excited to work on. And then what are some ways that people are solving that I can, I can join in, you know? And so, and also, you know, how can my skill set be helpful, right? Like if, if a bunch of people are planning a potluck and I know that I'm not great at cooking, but I'm really good at social media, maybe I can be the social media nudge that gets everyone to the potluck. Right. And I mean, there's just so many ways we can be helpful, but we need to get kids some real experience with identifying problems and starting to feel agency and in, in, in problem solving. And so, you know, these, these young people in Florida who are looking at the terrible problem of mass shootings, including in schools, who are saying they want to create policy that makes that less likely. I'm really impressed with the ways that they're mobilizing to be problem solvers. And I think they, they are products of a really great school system that encourage them to think that way and to use their voices and speak out. And I, I, I just think we want all of our students to be looking at the world and thinking about how they can contribute. That's I think fantastic. that's awesome because it doesn't, and I always try to remind students, we're not looking for leaders of tomorrow. We're looking for leaders of today. You can be a leader right now. Yep. And I, I mean, as a teacher tried to teach problem solving, but problem finding is just as important. The, who mm-hmm. said a problem well stated is half solved. And if you can identify the problem, you're way on your way to solving it. So I love that you said that. Thank you so much. We're going to let you run on this. Where can our listeners go to learn from and with you? Sure. You can find me on my website, raisingdigitalnatives.com. And from there, link out to social media. I'm at Devorah Heitner at Twitter. And I would say Twitter and my website are probably the best places to connect with me right now. I'm running out of words to convey the amazingness of our guests. So let's close up shop, Becky. What did you learn from Devorah? I reacted most to the idea that empathy is the app. Like I, to me, that means how how we need to get back to the human side of this discussion and not worry as much about what the best app to use is for this or that task, but instead to think more deeply about the task and how we want it to affect the person we're working with and let that drive our decisions instead. Uh, I was also really impressed by um, how much she includes kids in the discussion about how technology is affecting them. Like, is it helping them? Is it stressing them out? Uh, it just, I think having, even just having that discussion with them more often is going to be helpful in how we shape, how we use technology in our classrooms and in our homes. Yeah, so many big takeaways for me. I love leading with the positives and teaching digital citizenship that kind of going off that George Kuros quote that we don't teach how to write by telling people not to stab someone. So yeah, lead with the positives I thought was awesome. And then I loved and was challenged and am thinking about. So hit me up on Twitter if you're thinking about it too. Uh, just how distracted we are when we are always on our computers and have every single notification turned on. I'm in the middle of a book by Cal Newport about deep work. And I loved how Devorah said when she's got some deep work to do, she turns the Wi-Fi off. So I'm kind of challenged by that. And my mind is wrapped around that. So if you have thoughts on that, hit me up on Twitter. I think I read somewhere that every time you get distracted, it's you're off task for like an average of 30 minutes after that. Like you can't get back to your deep work for like 30. I mean, it's just insane how how unproductive we are when we try to multitask. Anyways, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play if you have not yet. Uh, share this with a friend. It's great summer listening if you're on summer break right now. Uh, and as always, have a great generic time of day. Mm-hmm.